We're going to take a little break from our uh, Revelation study. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of emphasis lately on soul winning, on our Thursday night outreach. And I want to commend each and every one of you who have participated. And those of you who are unable to participate, I know you've been fervent in prayer uh, for those who are going out, for boldness, for opportunity, and for working in the hearts. And uh, I just got to be thinking a lot about, um, as a matter of fact, uh, Mrs. Marshall and I, I don't know if you remember this, a couple months ago we were talking about revival and all the great revivals throughout history. Now, if you've lived as long as the Marshalls have, you know, like since Abraham Lincoln was president, um, no, no, nah, they're not that old, but uh, just a little bit older. No, just kidding. But uh, there have been a lot of great revivals throughout history in America, throughout the world. And uh, I, I was just taking some time to look through the Bible at some of the great revivals. I mean, you think of the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. Thousands added to the church daily. Uh, but what I want to talk to you tonight about is, is the greatest revival in the Bible that almost never was. The greatest revival that almost never was. If you could turn in the Bibles to the book of Jonah, and it's it, the book of Jonah, um, you'll find it in the Minor Prophets and uh I believe it's, uh, if I'm not mistaken, just after Nehemiah, maybe. In any event, um, we're going to go through the book of Jonah tonight, and there's some, actually, it's right after Obadiah. It's right after Obadiah, right before Micah. But uh, everyone knows the story of Jonah. From the time you were a little kid, uh, I'm sure you've heard the story a hundred times over about Jonah and the whale, and Jonah in the belly of the whale. But uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what made this a great revival and, and uh, what was the, what's the biggest hindrance to revival? Why don't we see revival uh, in this time like we used to? I remember as a child um, growing up in a local Baptist church and, and a Sunday service couldn't go by where two or three people didn't walk the aisle and got saved. And uh, I can remember uh, going to all sorts of different kinds of meetings, camp meetings, tent meetings. I even remember going up to um, University of Michigan and saw Billy Graham and uh, just, you know, hundreds of people at a time walking the aisle, 10 or 20 or 30 people walking the aisle during a service. It, but you just don't see that anymore. So what, what is preventing revival? And what's the biggest hindrance to revival? Well, let's take a look at what happened here. Um, in the story of Jonah... God used one single man to bring about the greatest revival in human history. And if God did it then, God can do it again now. So let's just start off in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. It says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Now, um, some of you may not know, this is not the first mention of Jonah. Jonah is actually mentioned one other time in the Bible. We can find a reference to him, you don't have to turn there, but in 2 Kings, in uh, chapter 14, verse 25, talking about the reign of Amaziah, there's a little couple of sentences in there. It says, He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake, by the hand of his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet which was of Gathahepher. Um, so Jonah had been used once before by God. Jonah was a known prophet. The people of Israel knew that Jonah had a connection with God, uh, that God had used him. And in the past, in this particular circumstance that we referred to in 2 Kings, it was, it was great news because at this time the tribes had been divided. Uh, 
most of Israel proper had been taken away into captivity. The few remaining tribes were holding on and a lot of their land had been lost. But they were able to regain land and and re-strengthen what little they had left. And Jonah was the one who prophesied, not to worry, don't worry, God's going to give us some victories. And I can, I don't know Jonah for sure, but I know that if God gives me good news and gives me a good message to tell someone of something happy and wonderful, man, I'm all about that. And so Jonah was eager, you know, when God wanted him to give that good news, he wanted to share that good news with the people of Israel. But this message was going to be a little bit different. Um, now that the word of the Lord had come to Jonah, uh, um, Jonah was going to have to take, uh, a pretty bad message to some pretty bad dudes, and he wasn't looking forward to it. Nineveh was not the people of Israel. They were a powerful, wicked, and evil nation. That's why their wickedness had come up to God, and he was judging them. And Jonah didn't look forward to this. Um, We are all, in a way, Jonah's. And you'll say, well, Ron, I'm not a prophet. The word of the Lord hasn't come to me. Well, you know, the Bible says that in the beginning was the word, and the word was God. Uh, If you have been saved then you have the word of God. You have Jesus Christ in you. Second uh, Peter tells us that we have a more sure word of prophecy in this Bible. If you have a Bible and you're saved, you have Jesus Christ in you and you have all the prophecy that you could ever need. A more sure word of prophecy than anything that God told directly to a prophet in the Old Testament. So, in a way, we are all Jonah's. We, are all, we all have the word of God. It's all come to us. And God has asked us to go out and to win the lost. So just just keep in mind that if Jonah could do it with God's help, we could all do it with God's help. If Jonah could have the greatest revival in history and God could use him to accomplish that, God could use any one of us or all of us to accomplish the same thing. All right, so... um, Looking at, uh, cha- at verse 3 in chapter 1. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and he went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So imagine this. Jonah's going to flee God's presence. So just to understand at this particular point in time of Jonah, um, Christ hasn't come yet. The Messiah hasn't come yet. He hasn't died on a cross. People are not indwelled when they're saved with God and the Holy Spirit like they are today. So God, during this period of time, quite often he would pick a place to be present. He would be at the tabernacle. He would be at his appointed place in Jerusalem. And quite often, if you wanted to get to God, if you wanted to hear what God had to say, you had to go to where he was. You had to put yourself in his presence. Now that's not the same for us today as born-again believers, but for those who are lost, it's still the same in that if you want to know Jesus Christ, if you want salvation, you have to do it on God's terms. You have to show up where God is present, and that presence is at the foot of the cross, and that's in the faith and the trust and the belief in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So unlike us modern-day Christians in the church age, Jonah somehow thought he could just flee the presence of the Lord. It's like, well, you know, I'm in Jerusalem. I'm in the temple. That's where I hang out. And God gave me this commandment. And and, and Jonah didn't say, God, I'm not going to go. He didn't say no. He just said, he just didn't go. Okay. So he decided he was going to flee the presence. Um, How many of us are doing the same thing as Jonah when it comes to winning the lost? 
Now think about this. You know, we're all faithful to church. We might be faithful to our Bible reading, uh, to our prayer time. Um, and, and we may on occasion hand out a track. We may on occasion witness. Uh, but you know what? Just like Jonah fleeing to a place of leisure and trying to pay a fare to get away, you know, often we do the same thing too. How much time do we spend in leisure activities? How much time do we spend watching TV or surfing the internet or just wasting our time idly on hobbies or other things? And, you know, sometimes we, we, we spend our time, and it's not on a bad thing, you know, maybe we occupy our time with good things, with family, with church, with work, with other things. But how many of those things compare in importance to winning souls to Christ? You know, we, we invest our resources in vacations and in uh, having nice things. And there's nothing wrong with taking vacations. There's nothing wrong with having nice things. But we need to count the cost. If we can invest so much in our own pleasure, in our own leisure time, how much more should we be investing in winning souls to Christ? It should be the most important thing that we do. We need to weigh the value. We can't just pacify ourselves with the fact that, well, I'm a good Christian. Um, You know, I read my Bible. I come to church faithfully. There's more to the Christian life than just attending church and being a good Christian. It's about winning the lost. Now, as we continue on in the story in chapter 1, verses 4 and 6, it says, But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise and call on thy God. If so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. Could you just imagine that? Here, here, we are, here he is on a ship with all these lost men. And they're just traveling about. They're, they're merchant marines. They're on their way to take cargo and passengers to their destination. And this, this terrible storm comes up. A, so, a, so, a storm so terrible that it threatens to literally break apart the ship. And trust me, if you're a merchant marine and you start throwing your cargo overboard, it's got to be a pretty serious situation. Okay, When you start getting throwing out the cargo and the things of value and emptying them out, you're pretty much afraid something bad's going to happen. And, and it starts to get so bad that these guys are all begging and pleading their gods. And finally, the shipmaster realizes, hey, that guy we took on at Joppa, where is he? Oh, he's down in the cargo hold asleep, fast asleep. And they said, wake up. Don't you care what's happening to us? Don't you care that we're all going to die? You know, pray to your God like the rest of us. And, you know, quite often we go through the storms of life and we all have problems and things come up. And, and this isn't always the case, but, but I know it is with me and maybe it is with you. Whenever God brings something into my life that's, that's terrible or a problem or a storm, the first thing that pops into my mind is, oh, God, what did I do now? How did I disobey you, God? What kind of punishment is this? What do I need to get right? But you know, that's not always the case. You know, God isn't always punishing us for the sins that are in our lives. Um, you know, quite often, we get so worried about our don't list. Now, when I say our don't list, that's like, well, I don't drink. 
I don't smoke. I don't cuss. I don't go to inappropriate movies. I don't go to rock concerts. We have this huge list of all these things that we don't do. And now you all know my stand from a couple of weeks back on standards, and standards are a good thing, and they're there to prevent you from those head-on collisions that are going to destroy your lives and the lives of others. But you know what I was thinking about when I was reading this? If by some unforeseen consequence you were to fall short of your do-not list, or you were to fall into some terrible, abhorrent sin, those things are all covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. Those sins are already forgiven. And you might suffer consequences in the flesh for those sins or those problems, but they're only as, they're only as permanent as this flesh is and this world is. None of those things you don't do, and none of those things you do do when it comes to sin and what you're trying to avoid, are going to mean anything in an eternity with Jesus Christ. So that's good if you have standards, if you don't do certain things. But boy, we sure get hung up on what we don't do and and we're worried that that God maybe sends a tempest or a storm to punish us for what we are doing that we know we shouldn't do. But those things are already covered under the blood. You know, quite often, maybe it's a circumstance similar to what Jonah's in. Maybe God's just sending that storm to wake us up. Maybe God has a more important purpose. Maybe God wants to see souls one to Christ. Now, you all know the story of Jonah. You all know how it turns out. And you're saying, well, yeah, Ron, the great revival, it's when the people of Nineveh, the whole city, repents. Well, that's true. But there's actually, we're going to see three great revivals as we go through this story. Three great revivals that take place. Now, um, what's interesting is, is that uh, even though God might send the storm as a way to get our attention, uh, what I find interesting in this particular case is that here we are in the midst of this storm. All the other men are suffering from the consequences and the turmoil that were brought on by Jonah trying to flee from the Lord. And while they're suffering all the consequences of the storm that are being brought about because of Jonah, Jonah is fast asleep. And then Uh, As a consequence of this, they're all begging their own gods, looking for help, pleading to their false gods. No answers are coming. And meanwhile, Jonah is fast asleep. In the midst of all this trouble, he is fast asleep. And I have to ask myself, are we fast asleep? Do we need to wake up and take a look around? This world is in so much chaos and in so much turmoil And they're struggling every day to try to find out where their hope is. And they're trying to, just like those uh, sailors cast off the wares of the ship, people are trying to cast off their problems, trying to get rid of their bad habits, trying to find solutions, throwing everything overboard that they can in hopes of gaining a better life, but to no avail. And the whole time, the answer is right there amongst them. God placed a Christian right there amongst them who knows the answer. Are we fast asleep while the world around us is dying? Are we fast asleep while our next door neighbors, our friends, our family members, our co-workers are in the storm of a lifetime? And that storm might be a, a physical storm, a, a health issue, another kind of uh, problem. But the true storm that they're in that they don't even know about, the one that they're fast asleep and unaware of, is that they're hurtling towards an eternity in hell. Hell is real. Hell is the destination for every man, woman, child, and soul that does not know Jesus Christ. It is a real place, and they're going to just steam headlong into hell 
worried about the troubles of this world and not knowing that the solution to their worldly problems and more importantly, their spiritual problems is Jesus Christ. And the only means by which they are going to ever hear about Jesus Christ is through another believer, is through the witnessing of an individual, whether that be a verbal witnessing face-to-face or a track or your support of a missionary, but it's going to come through the foolishness of preaching. It's going to come through a body of believers reaching out to the lost among them. Now, um, it would be so much easier in life for us to be a better witness if everyone that we came across in our lives or, or anyone we encountered when we were out on the street had one of those little cartoon bubbles around their head. Or maybe that you could get an app on your phone that would kind of light up and tell you a little bit about, you know, if you have location settings on your phone, like I, I can't go past a, a particular restaurant, McDonald's, and it doesn't like light up on my phone and say, hey, Big Mac's right here to the left, just two miles away. But could you imagine if you had a device on your phone, or like I said, a little cartoon bubble popped up every time you ran into someone, maybe that young girl at the checkout counter, if you knew that uh, in her heart, she was concerned because tonight she was going to have to do something inappropriate with someone she didn't want to just to make sure there was food on the table the next morning for her kids. Or maybe that guy you passed on the street corner or you saw as you uh, came up to the stoplight who was panhandling because he's addicted to drugs because he couldn't cope with the abuse he had as a child and now his life is tattered and in ruins. Or maybe you see that wealthy businessman and if you could only read what was in his mind, he, he looks like he's well-dressed, he looks like he's happy, he looks like he's important but his head lies on the pillow every night crying because uh, he's an alcoholic, because his wife and him fight constantly, because he hasn't spoken to his children in years. People's lives are in shambles, and we just walk on by. We're just, all we care about is our own little world and our own little life, and we're like Christians in a cocoon of happiness. We have the joy of the Lord. We have the peace of the Lord. We, we're, we're good Christians. We, you know, we're charitable to one another. We pray. We read our Bibles. We attend church, but we don't care for the lost. People are dying and going to hell. People are suffering tragedies that they feel there is no hope for. Do you know how many people are going to commit suicide tonight because they have no hope? They don't have the hope of the Lord? It's one thing to be so hopeless that you would give up this physical life, but it ain't going to get any better. For them, a lost person, suicide means waking up in hell. And I don't care how bad they thought their life was. I don't care how depressed they were. I don't care how horrible their circumstance was. They escaped to hell, a place a million times over worse than anything they had to endure on this earth. And the whole time, we just sleeping in the ship, just, just slumbering, just thinking about the good times we're going to have, thinking about all the great things that we're going to do. And, and none of them are necessarily bad things. But the problem is that, uh, that the whole time, people are dying and going to hell. In Verses 7 and 10, it says, And they said, Everyone to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause is this evil upon us? What's thy occupation? Whence comest thou? 
What is thy country? And of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Now this is the part that's really crazy to me. And I didn't catch it the first two, few times that I read through it. But listen to what it says. Once they found out who he was, once they found out that he was a Hebrew, a follower of Jehovah, then they got really frantic and afraid. You see, what you, what you don't realize is, is, and it says right in the passage, because he had earlier, in, somewhere earlier in the journey, he had told them that he was fleeing God. And that's why he was on the ship. But what he didn't tell them is what God he was fleeing. You know, I wonder sometimes if we're not the same way. You know, I'm sure that anyone who knows you personally, anyone you encounter in your life on a regular basis, they know there's something different about you. They think, well, yeah, they're, they're religious. Yeah, they go to church. As a matter of fact, I, I've seen him read a Bible now and again. I've seen him pray over his meal. But they have no clue what God you serve. That you serve the one true God. You don't, your life isn't different because you follow the latest trend or you follow some guru on the internet or because uh, you're trying to be the best possible version of you. You're different for one reason and one reason alone, and that is because Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, is in you. And he got there because of your acceptance of him and his finished work on the cross. Anything you have, everything you have, any good thing you've ever done, came as a result of God. And i got to say, probably 99, God's good to even the lost, but he's even especially good to his own. And you wouldn't have a third, a tenth, an eighth of what you have without Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. It's not enough that people know you're different. It's not enough that people know you're religious. People need to know that you're different because of the saving power of Jesus Christ. And we don't tell that. We, we're just lifestyle evangelism, Ron. I just live a clean life. They just know how nice I am. They, I do. I, I put money in that little thing up there for like United Way and I'm always praying at the meals and I'm always telling my coworkers, you know, you should come to church or let me pray for you. But did you ever tell them about Jesus Christ and the fact that they're going to end up in a lake of fire for an eternity in torment and pain and that the only way out is not the church, is not religion, is not good living, it's not changing your lifestyle, it's not getting better habits, it's not getting rid of old habits, it's Jesus Christ and Christ alone. But we don't do it. We don't do it. We have the answer. And not only do we have the answer, but we have the proof of our salvation. I mean, I look around here and I don't, I don't think there's anyone amongst us here tonight who ha isn't saved and hasn't been saved for some period of time. So you might have stepped out in faith on that day that you accepted Jesus Christ. But if you're, if you're anything like me and like I know most of you are, you're long since the past the point of requiring faith to know that you're saved. God has proven it to you time and time again. You might not always feel like you're saved. You might not always want to do what God wants you to do. But you can't flee the presence of Jesus Christ 
in you. He's locked in. He's there. You don't wake up every morning wondering, am I saved? Is the God of this Bible true? You know it because he's proved it and you've lived it. And what more, you know, we say, give your testimony. You know, you go to an open court and you raise your hand, you swear before God in the Bible to give your testimony in account of the truth. Your salvation, your life is the ultimate testimony to the truth of Jesus Christ, to the redeeming power of salvation through Jesus Christ. You have a testimony that no one else has. We've all been saved the same way, but we haven't all come to Christ the same way. Some of you have testimonies where you were saved from terrible sin. Some of you grew up in homes and were saved as young children. Some of you rejected and fleed from God like Jonah ran away. But God pursued you until you could not avoid his presence. And you fell on your knees and you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And your life has never been the same since. What a gift could you give? I talked about putting money in the can for United Way. What better gift could you give than the gift of Jesus Christ? Christ. And you know what? You say, well, I, I got important things to do. I'm doing important things. My time is valuable to me. It is so valuable. It, if, you came across, if you came upon a wreck on the highway and saw a, an accident happen and the car burst into flames, would you just drive on by? Well, maybe I'll call 911. Maybe I'll call the pastor and send him out to witness to these people. Or maybe I'll mention it to some of the guys who I know soul win. No, when there is an immediate need and you're the first responder, you need to be there. You need to be ready to present the gospel. There is no living being that isn't saved that doesn't need the gospel immediately. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next year. Today, immediately. So I just wonder sometimes if we just, uh, the world knows that we have something, but they don't know exactly what it is that we have. Verses 11 through 17. Then they said, this being the sailors, said unto him, What shall we do unto thee that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was temptuous. And he, being Jonah, said unto them, Take me and cast me forth into the sea, So the sea shall be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to land, but they could not, for the sea wrought and was temptuous against them. These guys didn't want to throw Jonah overboard. This storm was there for Jonah, and it was pretty clear to everyone that that probably was the reason. And and Jonah had the answer. Jonah said, well, just throw me overboard. Just throw me overboard. Boy, I pray that God doesn't throw any of us overboard. I pray that God doesn't just say, I'm done with you, Ron. Just, just, the only way to solve this problem, Ron, is we're going to throw you overboard. Maybe we'll make an example out of you. Win souls to Christ. Don't be thrown overboard. Now, wherein they cried unto... Now, what's interesting is... Uh, the sea was wrought and temptuous against them. Wherefore, they cried unto the Lord and said... This is the sailors. They said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood. For thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah, and they cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord, and made vows Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I told you there were three great revivals in this story. Here's the first one. 
a shipload of hardened sailors. What did it say when the, when they threw him in and, and it ceased? It said that uh, they offered a sacrifice unto the Lord, that they feared the Lord, and they all made vows. Jonah didn't realize that he had uh, witnessed uh, to the power of God to these sailors. He didn't know these sailors got saved because he's in the belly of a whale right now. Okay, he probably he may have never even known this side of heaven what the result was of what happened to him. You know what? You can serve. You can win lost souls one of two ways: by obeying the word of God and going and telling, or forget about it. Go to sleep. Flee the presence of the Lord. But when the storm comes, God will get souls saved. Maybe it'll be through your destruction. Maybe it'll be through them seeing what God does in your life and tosses you overboard and how miraculously God just ends the problem uh, with you being gone and God still gets the glory. You know what? If God's going to make sure that people get saved, Better through you than through no one. Better from you than someone else. Better through you than you suffering a consequence for your disobedience. Because in the end, these men still got saved. These men still feared the Lord. These men still sacrificed to God. These men still made vows. Jonah never knew about it. What's interesting, too, is uh, of all the things that Christ chose to talk about in his lifetime, you know, in Matthew, he talks about uh, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh a sign, but the only sign I'll give you is the sign of Jonah, uh, three days and three nights as, uh, in the heart of the earth as Jonah was in the belly of the whale. Jesus Christ himself knew the importance of winning souls. That's why he came to this earth. That's why he died on a cross. And it's interesting to me that he chose to refer to a passage about a man who was sent to bring judgment, to warn people to repent. You know, he didn't tell Jonah, go and tell them that I'm going to kill them because they're evil and wicked. He said, go and tell them to repent. God didn't want to destroy the lost. He wanted to save the lost. He wanted to turn them from their wickedness. And Jonah wouldn't go. Jonah fled, brought a storm about him, caused other men's lives to be put in peril. Boy, time flies so fast. It's 742. We've got to move this along. The second great revival in this story takes place in chapter 2. We're not going to take the time to read through it, but there's no doubt in my mind. Jonah is in the belly of that whale, and Jonah is dead. Jonah is dying. Jonah is about to have his soul end up in hell. He goes down to the depths of the earth, to the bars of the earth, to the mountains. The waters and the billows are around him. The seaweeds all around him. And just before he loses all hope, what does he remember? He remembers the mercy of his Lord and God. And he turns to him and he begs God. He said, Oh Lord, my God, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came in unto thee into thine holy temple. And they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercies. But I will sacrifice unto thee with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And then the Lord spake, not to Jonah, but under the fish. And that fish vomited Jonah out onto dry land. You know what? If we're going to see souls one to Christ, it starts with us. Obviously, if you're not saved, you need to know Jesus Christ before you can go out and be a witness. Although I've known some people who shared the gospel who were lost and people have gotten saved because the power is not in the, the speaker or the deliverer. It's in the word of God. It's in the power of Jesus Christ. But all I'm saying is this, is the second great revival 
is Jonah himself. Jonah revived himself and begged God for mercy and wanted a second chance at life and was ready and raring to go, not only because he knew the depths of hell for himself or what death meant and held for him, but I'm sure he had a pretty good taste of what death was going to be to the people who had never known to call upon Jesus, who had never known God's favor. And all the more fervent was he now to go ahead and fulfill what God had called him to do the first time. So in chapter 3, we see that second great revival. We see that personal revival. And if we're going to see souls won to Christ, if we're going to see a great and magnificent revival here in this town, in this state, in this country, in this world, it's going to start with personal revival. We're going to need to come to that decision in our own lives that as much as we've done for Christ, as good as we are for him, it doesn't mean anything in eternity if we abandon lost souls. God's called us to a purpose, and that purpose is to win the lost. Now Jonah chapter, or I'm sorry, Jonah chapter 3, um, And here we come to that third great revival. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went into Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah it would have taken three days to walk from one end of the city to the other. And Jonah got about one day's journey in, and he said, this is a good place to start. And he says a really simple phrase. He said, um, he cried and said, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, I don't know what he did after that. I don't know if he walked forward deeper into the city for two more days or if he hightailed it out uh, one day's journey back out the way he came in. I'm not 100% sure. I think he stuck around for a while. And uh, so so he just makes, this is the only account we have. He just stands up in the street and he yells something out. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them um, to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and he covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and the king's nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from his violence who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not and God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them and he did not could you imagine could you imagine you know we saw that I wasn't here, but you all saw that video of Dane Vogapool handing the gospel track about his wife's testimony and his testimony to the king of Scotland, the king of England, Charles. Could you imagine if King Charles read that track? Uh, he, maybe he's having indigestion one night. Maybe he's got nothing better to do. He pulls open that track, and God just gets a hold of his heart. And he wakes up the next morning, and he says, 
Oh my God, I need you, Lord. I need to be saved. And he's the king, not just the king of England, just not the king of Scotland. He's the king of 32 nations on the face of this earth. And he stands up and he says, I'm the king. I can do a whole lot of stuff. And he writes a royal proclamation. He takes off those fancy robes and he puts on sackcloth and ashes. And he says, people of the United Kingdom, repent from your violence and your wickedness. Turn to Jesus Christ. Now, I know from what little I know that there are crazy people in this world who care nothing about anything but what the royals do. They care about who Prince whoever is married to and what she's going to wear and all this other stuff. Could you imagine how many people would be influenced by the King of England repenting to Jesus Christ? Could you imagine if Joe Biden got on TV tomorrow and said, look, I know I'm an old doddering fool, but I just found out something and believe me, this is the truth. Jesus Christ is God. He is the only way to get saved. He is the only way to avoid hell. What in the world would that do? And you know what? You say, well, that's foolish. No one's ever going to get him to to think that. No one's ever going to get a fancy person to say that. You know what? Jonah didn't get to go see the king. Jonah didn't get to go see the nobles. Jonah stood out in the middle of the street in a city twice the size of Toledo and said, repent, and in 40 days, God will judge. You know, I see some of the young men here and some of the older people on the street corners every once in a while. I see Brother Kelly and his wife out there faithfully, and they're, they're just preaching. They're not, they're not being aggressive. They're not going to be in your face, but they're telling the truth that without Jesus Christ, you have a, you have a life in hell awaiting you. And then here's, here's the crazy part, and we're going to try to wrap this up, but I got, I got something that's really important here that I want to say. In that fourth and final chapter, Jonah's, Jonah leaves the city. He goes up to a hill on the east side of the city. He builds a booth and he hangs out. Let's see what God's going to do. And Jonah's angry. He's unhappy. And God says, what cause do you have to be angry, Jonah? And Jonah says, well, you know, that's the whole reason why I fled in the first place, God. I know how merciful you are. And I knew that if you sent me, you were just going to repent of your evil anyhow. How backwards and twisted is that? That's to say, well, I don't witness... Because God's going to be merciful and he's got this plan of salvation for people. No, it's through you. Do you realize that salvation is wrought through Jesus Christ? The only person who could pay the price. No one else, nothing else could do it. But the crazy part of it is, no one can have that salvation unless they're told about it, unless they read about it, unless they hear about it. As powerful as the work of Christ is on the cross, we make it moot if we don't share it, if we don't tell others, if we don't spread the gospel. And the story goes on to say that God in one night brings up a gourd over his head. And Jonah's so happy because God made a vehement wind to come and it was hot out there in the booth. And he said, oh man, this is nice. I got this gourd. Must have been a big giant pumpkin or something because it was giving him some shade. He was happy. And then the next morning he wakes up and there's a worm in there and it just eats away and kills it. And now he's angry. And God says, you're wroth because I killed the gourd, the gourd that you didn't have anything to do with giving it life, I took its life, and you care more about the gourd than the people who were in Nineveh? He said that there were um, 60,000 who didn't know their right hand from their left hand. Little baby children. I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to close with something really important. But, you know, the thought occurred to me, um, you know, an unborn child, a child who hasn't reached the age of accountability, they're going to end up in heaven. God's going to be merciful to them. 
And, and you know, abortion is a scourge in this nation. It's a scourge in this world. And we are fervent against, in our stand against abortion, that taking of an unborn life that begins at conception. And that's right and good, and I'm not speaking against that at all, but when that soul is taken, it's going to be in heaven. It's going to have an eternity in heaven with God. You realize that every man, woman, and child who wasn't aborted, who came to life, who lives a life, they have that same soul in them, that same soul that that poor innocent child has. But the problem is they've reached the age of accountability. They have to make a decision to either accept Christ or reject Christ. And as upset as we might get about abortion and how wicked and evil it is, when it comes to an eternity in heaven, that's settled for them. But it's not for those who are walking this earth right now. How, how is it any less important? How isn't it not 20 times more important that we save the soul of a living man, woman, or child? Now, I'm going to share a, an illustration and a story with you. I don't need to show my hands, but most of you probably remember the day you were saved. And maybe you don't remember the exact day or the exact hour. I know I was saved in the summer of 17, 1976 because it was the bicentennial. I think it was in June or July. It was somewhere around there. I distinctly remember being at the foot of my bed and having prayed. And, and we can all look to a time when we were saved. How many of you, though, and I'm sure this time, some of you might have to struggle back and think about this for a minute. Can you remember the time when you first realized that other people needed to be saved too? And you remember that time when you were able to put away for a quick second the joy of your salvation and realize that, wait a minute, mom and dad aren't saved. My aunt and uncle aren't saved. My, my little friend Tommy down the street, he's going to hell. He's not saved. And I remember exactly the time and the place where I came to this realization. I was at a large, I was a teenager at the time, maybe 13, 14 years old. I was at a big church probably twice the size of this for a a big revival meeting. And a a gentleman told this story that I'm going to share with you. And and I've heard it told a couple of different ways, but I'm telling the story, so I'm going to tell it the way I like to tell it. But there was a young man um, who had gone wayward. And he had he'd grown up in a Christian home but never accepted Jesus Christ. And he had abandoned the ways of his family. And and so much like the prodigal son, uh, the minute he got a chance to leave, he was gone, headed for the big city. They lived down south somewhere in Florida, and he wanted to go to New York and see the world. And, and life just didn't turn out the way he had expected it to. Not unlike the prodigal son, he had squandered everything he had. He had the physical scars, the mental scars, the emotional scars to show what this world had done to him. And he had purposed in his heart, you know what, it's time to go back home. The only good things I ever knew were back at home. Maybe mom and dad will have a place for me. Home is where I need to go. And so he decided, to, he, he, he rented a, a car and he headed out and he said, you know what, I'm driving through the night. I got to get back home. And uh, he, that's a, it's a long journey from New York down south to Florida. Some of you are going to make a road trip down to Florida uh, pretty soon. Some of your kids are going to college and whatnot. So uh, I, I forget exactly where it was. It was maybe on the outskirts of Florida, maybe still in Georgia. And it was in the middle of the night and he could barely stay awake. And, and all I could think about was getting home. And every once in a while, he started to doze off. And then the approaching headlights would jar him or that little rumble strip would jar him. Well, then it started to rain. And a rain like he had never seen before. A storm like he had never seen before. And it just got harder and harder to drive. But he was just, he was going to push through. He was going to push through. He was going to push through. Every once in a while, he'd nod off just a moment. But the approaching headlights would wake him up. Then all of a sudden, he started to realize, you know what? There's all these cars behind me. 
there's all these cars in front of me, but where's all the approaching headlights? I don't see the approaching headlights. And no sooner than he had thought this thought, have you ever, have you ever stepped on the gas when you were in neutral and how that engine revs? And all of a sudden, his engine is just revving out of control. And then all of a sudden, he feels this, this downward falling sensation. And he realizes that that bridge he was going over isn't there anymore. And he's on his way, plunging down to the surface of that river in that storm. And that car hits that river with an impact like you wouldn't believe. And he's briefly knocked unconscious. But soon he's awakened to the feel of that cold, rushing water pouring in that car. And he's desperately trying to get that seat belt off. And he's desperately trying to get that door open. And that car is almost straight up in the air, perpendicular. And he's begging, God, help me, Lord. Just get me out of this. Whatever it takes, Lord. And he's trying all his strength and he can't beat that door open. He can't bust that glass. He tries everything within his own power to escape from that car. And finally, just as he takes that last grasp of air and that last burst of strength, that car settles down horizontally and somehow in some way through the miracle of God, his prayers answered and that windshield busts wide open and he gets that seat belt free and he climbs through that jagged glass, struggling with each last breath to get to the surface. Finally, finally he makes it to the surface battered and bleeding and torn and he sees that shore not too far away and he says, thank you Lord, Thank you, Lord. I promise you I'd do anything, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. And he makes it to that shore, and he climbs up on that shore, exhausted and just so thankful. Just so thankful for what God had done for him. But then he started to notice something. In all that rain and all that fog, he started to see those headlights up on that road, way above him. And one by one, they were disappearing into the fog. And then his fears were confirmed because when as those lights would disappear, he'd hear that sound of crunching metal and something hitting the water and a faint and distant scream, Help us! Help us! There were others on that road approaching that bridge, just like he did, not knowing what lie just ten feet ahead of them, an abyss, an eternity in hell, down to the depths. And as battered and as torn as he was on that shore, God spoke to him and said, you said you'd do anything for me? Who's going to go tell them? And with what strength he had, he climbed up over those rocks. He climbed up that embankment and he got out onto that road. And he was waving frantically and screaming, stop, stop, the bridge is out but they just passed him by. He was just some crazy lunatic, some bloody beaten drunkard for all they knew, some drug addict, some idiot on the side of the road yelling and screaming. I don't know how many cars went by. Finally, a sheriff, someone must have called the police or done something, but a sheriff's deputy came by and said, young man, what's going on here? What's the problem? Are you okay? Are you out of your mind? He said, the bridge, sir, the bridge, the bridge is out. Finally, they were able to get the help they needed. They, wrote, they blocked that road off. When it was all said and done, 16 cars had preceded him and 14 cars had followed him. And only half of them ever made it out of that water alive. And the question I have to tell you is this. Are you thankful that Jesus Christ saved you? Are you thankful that you don't have an eternity in hell to worry about? 
And have you made promises to God? Have you vowed a vow like those sailors? Are you willing to do the one thing that Jesus Christ is asking you to do? And that's to stand up and be a witness. You know what? Some people are going to look at you like you're crazy. Some people are going to look at you like you're a fool. But it doesn't matter. All it takes is for one to hear. All it takes is for one to hear. And who knows? You know what? You might not save 10,000, but you might save one who saves another one, who saves another one, who saves 20, who those 20 save 100. And the next thing you know, we're experiencing the greatest revival on the face of this earth, the greatest revival in this church, the greatest revival this city has ever seen, all because we were faithful to what God called us to do. I told you I titled this message, The Greatest Revival That Almost Wasn't. How many times was God ready to start a revival, and we just didn't do what we were supposed to do. How many times did you pass that person by and not give it a second thought that, boy, I should take some time to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them? How many times did you say, well, I've got something more important to do? There can't be anything more important to do in eternity. There are important things in this life. I'm not asking you to give up the things you do in this life, but the things in this life, for the most part, end when this life ends. There's going to be a whole entire eternity. And the only thing that's going to matter is who knew Jesus Christ. I'm thrilled and happy about all the people I'm going to get to see, loved ones who've gone on before me, other famous people uh, that I've read about in the Bible who will be in heaven. But I'm not too thrilled to know about the people that I knew who aren't going to be there. You know, the, the Bible tells us that a time will come when there'll be a great judgment and all of hell will give up the dead and they'll be judged and they'll be bound hand and foot and they'll be cast for eternity into a lake of fire. Could you imagine spending 100 years, 200 years, 2,000 years in hell only to get a brief respite to come up and be resurrected to find out that now in your glorified eternal body you were going to be, you were going to be judged and damned for eternity in a lake of fire and you were going to be bound head and foot and here's the part that kills me it says we're going to toss them in who am I going to toss in? Am I going to toss in the guy I neglected on the street corner? Am I going to toss in my cousin or my aunt? Am I going to toss in a co-worker? God forbid Now's the time to solve that problem. Now's the time to do something about that. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.